0: One of the things you may have noticed is that we do, um, we do some music that you may not be familiar with sometimes in RUF. Um, there is some intentionality behind that, uh, not necessarily to make you feel like you don't know any of the music, um, but because one of our convictions is that worship is formative, that we're always modeling for people and helping people understand what the normal Christian life feels like. And um, honestly... Um, that that's really important. Uh, I've been doing campus ministry here at Belmont with RUF this now year 21 and um, yeah. a long time ago as I began to talk to students regularly, um, particularly if they'd come from Christian church backgrounds, I'd regularly have these conversations where um, students would be struggling with doubts and then would conclude that if they had doubts that they must not be Christians and I began to ask more about that because the Bible is full of expressions of doubt and struggle, particularly in the Psalms. And as I began to kind of tease out what was going on there, I realized that a lot of their understanding of what they expected Christianity to feel like wasn't coming from the Bible, but it was coming from the songs they were singing. And we needed to find songs that were more honest about struggle and more explicit about the gospel and about the good news. So we ask you to kind of try out some of that stuff, because there really is something about um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, to be able to say that honestly, um, even as Daniel was praying that we're worn out, a lot of us, I had a long day today as well, um, it's refreshing to be able to come clean with God and not have to not have to pretend in worship that we're all excited all the time. And um, so that's some of what that's about. And um, we're, we're going to be studying this semester the parables of Jesus. And the reason is... Because one of the things that I think the Christian church struggles to remember is that when the Bible speaks about the gospel, that that word literally means good news. And yet in so many places, in so many contexts, when people talk about the good news or when they talk about the gospel or even what it means to preach the gospel, if you begin to explore what they really mean by that, it turns out that what they mean is closer to advice than news. That so often what people mean when they talk about preaching the gospel is telling people what to do. Maybe how to pray, how to live, how to secure their eternal destiny. All of those things are important. But when the Christians use the word gospel in the New Testament, they actually didn't mean those things. They meant news about something. News that didn't just come out of the blue, news that came within the context of a bigger story, but nonetheless news about something that had happened that would now change everything. And it was a pretty audacious claim that they made in the first century. We know of Pontius Pilate because of what Jesus did. Though in his day, he seemed a very important figure, certainly more important than Jesus. The reason you know about him and even know his name has nothing to do really with him and everything to do with the news about Jesus. And so as we get into this semester, I want us to study the parables because the parables are one of the best ways to recapture the excitement and the idea of what was this news Because here's the heart of it. The news that the early Christians were so excited about was primarily news about a king and his kingdom. And we need to understand more about the king and his kingdom. What did it mean? What did people expect? We read for our call to worship a little bit of Isaiah 25. Tonight, we're going to look at this parable of the wedding feast or the parable of the great banquet. And it's a parable that doesn't come out of the blue. It's a story that's rooted in one of the most important stories in Israel's history. Isaiah 25, the prophet Isaiah, talked about a great feast that was going to happen. And Jesus comes and takes that story and uses it as a way to say, what you've been expecting, what you've been longing for, it's here. Because I am the king It's my feast. So let's look at this passage. I think it'll be up here on the screen. Yes, thank you, Anna Kate. And I'm going to read a little more of Luke chapter 14 because Luke thought the context was important to understand this parable. So I'm going to read uh, some stuff. We're going to read verse 1, then we're going to jump down to verse 7, just so you get a little feel for what's the context in which this parable um, comes up. So one Sabbath... When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him, meaning Jesus, they were watching Jesus carefully. Okay, so that's the first context. He's dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Now, if you've been around church people, you probably think the Pharisees are the bad guys. Let me just tell you, in the Bible, and in the Bible's culture, they were the good guys. They were the holiest people. They were the people that everybody respected and looked up to because they were sacrificial and zealous ...for God and his kingdom. They weren't compromising with the Romans. They were serious about their faith. They were radical, if you will. Jump down to verse 7. Now he, meaning Jesus, told a parable... ...to those who were invited... ...when he noticed how they chose the places of honor... ...saying to them, this is what Jesus said... ...when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast... Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. They're like, look, when you show up, you get invited somewhere. Don't go sitting in the best place because, you know, what could happen is somebody even more powerful, more important than you might show up, and then it'll be kind of embarrassing because the guest, the, the uh." The guy running the thing will have to come over and say, hey, you kind of need to get up because this guy's more important. He gets that seat, right? That's what he's saying. He says, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who had invited him, so this is to the ruler of the Pharisees that invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to Jesus, "'Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God.' But Jesus said to him, "'A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, "'Come, for everything is now ready.' But they all alike began to make excuses." The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I need to go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were first invited shall taste my banquet." Let me pray, and then we'll dig into what's this parable about. Lord, we do thank you. We do thank you, Lord, that, that you speak words of truth, words that unveil who you are and what you're about. We pray, Lord, that the beauty of that would capture our hearts and our imaginations tonight. Send your spirit for that purpose We need to see Jesus. We need to see him as more beautiful and believable. So, Spirit, come and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the parables don't come out of nowhere. Luke gives us a couple clues to this. First of all, this is Luke chapter 14. Here's one of the things you need to understand about the parables. Jesus does not begin his public ministry speaking in parables, Do you know that? The the parables don't appear until the second year of the three years of Jesus' public ministry. He doesn't come out right from the get-go speaking in parables. Because parables are not just little illustrations to help us know how to have a better life. Parables are what Jesus begins to use when opposition to him begins to rise. See, the first year of Jesus' ministry, everybody's pretty happy with him. He's doing miracles, he's feeding people, they're running around, they're pretty impressed. But by the second year, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are becoming threatened, concerned, and they begin to watch him carefully, as it says here, right, in verse 1. They invite him to this party, and they're watching him. And not only that, in verse 7... He 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 basically takes issue with the way they are holding these parties, right? He says to them, look, you have these parties, and you basically invite all your rich friends so that they can invite you to their parties. Don't do that, <laughs> right? So you see, he's already kind of coming into some conflict. He's there in this situation, and he's having conflict with them. And then he begins this parable. So he's... Being watched, and he's not happy with the way the Jewish leaders are dealing and showing favoritism. Why? Because when they show favoritism, they are misrepresenting God Himself. They're misrepresenting God Himself. Jesus says there's always a connection between the way you relate to God and the way you relate to your, to other people. And if, if if you're basically, you know, just using your parties as an opportunity to win uh, influence with other powerful people, well, then that's what you're really trusting in. If you were really trusting in God and his blessing, then you would be generous. You wouldn't be living a life of tit for tat. You give me something and I'll give you something. So Jesus is kind of pointing that out, right? And he begins to talk about the the kingdom. And, And the way he's doing this is by taking one of the most well-known, beloved stories of Israel's history. Again, there's a particular context, the people that are there that have begun to oppose him and even kind of watch him carefully to see if they can trap him or see him trip up some way. But there's also an even bigger context to this parable, which is this story that we read as the call to worship, Isaiah 25. So the first thing to understand here about the parables is they don't come out of nowhere. They come because of opposition, and they come also because they're connected to the bigger story of what God has been doing in the world. And we see that in this passage in particular. Jesus is connecting to a pre-existing story. And at the end of this story, did you see how how he ended the very last verse there? I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. See what he did there? He took this story about God's banquet, the great wedding feast to which all history is pointing, and he threw in that word, my banquet. This is my banquet, because I'm the king. I'm the one that this story is really about. Okay. Now, this is offensive news to some. The, uh, the, the leadership, the Pharisees, the rich, the powerful, they're not really into this revelation of the kingdom. And what basically Jesus is saying is, You've been longing for this great feast. It's here. And you're complaining about the kind of people I hang out with. You leaders are complaining that I go hang out with the riffraff and the poor. You think I should be more like you, hanging out with the rich and the powerful. That's not what I'm about. And they're beginning to oppose him. so he speaks in a parable. Now, here's something you need to understand about Jesus' day. There's a lot of writings we have of the Jewish understandings of things from Jesus' day. And there's a couple that are important to understand about this particular story of Isaiah 25. Let me me read for you a couple of them. I put this on this little outline, um, but you can just hear this. The book of Enoch, which is a Jewish book from the 2nd century B.C., so about 200 years before this event took place, says this about the banquet. Isaiah 25 already exists. It's already beloved by Israel. And the book of Enoch comes along later and says, the angel of death will also be at the banquet, and he will slaughter the Gentiles with his sword. I guess he thought Isaiah forgot to mention that. So Isaiah has a story about how all peoples will be there at this feast. The Jews weren't really excited about that idea. And In the book of Enoch, they say, well, you know, actually, all peoples are going to be there, but the angel of death is going to slaughter all the Gentiles that show up. Another uh, example is a group called the Essenes, and there were different kind of Jewish sects at the time of Jesus. The Essenes said this about this great uh, banquet, because they believed that this banquet was coming, but the the Essenes said that there's going to be a hierarchy of seeding at the banquet, based on your righteousness. And the banquet would not include, and this is a quote, anyone who was smitten in his flesh, paralyzed in his feet or hands, or lame or blind or deaf or dumb, or smitten in his flesh with any visible blemish. Any of you got visible blemishes? (laughs) You wouldn't be welcome, according to the Essenes, at this great banquet. You see how they've twisted this story? about God's good news that it will be for all the peoples. And all the, they've turned it and twisted it into something that really kind of puts them in the powerful place. The rich and the powerful and the pure will be there. But everybody else either doesn't get invited or if they do show up, the angel of death will smite them. Jesus is taking on all those false interpretations of this important story of Israel. Because they're misrepresenting the banquet. And if you misrepresent the banquet, you misrepresent the character of God himself. Not only are they misrepresenting the character of God by the people that they invite to their banquet and by the people they choose to hang out with, they're misinterpreting what this banquet is about. And in doing so, are misrepresenting the character of God. Remember, this parable was told in response to a statement made in verse 15. Let's go back and look at verse 15. So, Jesus is is talking about being blessed and about the resurrection of the just and all that. And then somebody that's there says this Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And you're like, I guess that sounds like something that would be a blessing. The question, though, is how are you going to get there? Yes, certainly. Blessed is everyone who gets to eat bread. In the kingdom of God. The question is, why do you get to eat the bread? And that's the difference between what the Pharisees believe and what Jesus believes. And that's the difference between the good news and news that isn't good at all. There actually was, uh, we had some, some evidence from the first century that, there, that this was a debate about the great banquet. And one of the things that, that we know is that when someone said what this guy says in verse 15, there was an expected response. So when the guy says this, what he's saying is, I take this side in the debate. And what Jesus is expected to say, the traditional answer that was expected is this, oh, may we keep the law so that we may eat the bread at that feast. So it was almost like, you know, the guy says almost like the code word. Blessed is everyone who gets to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is supposed to support the orthodox view and say, everyone who keeps the law will get to eat the bread. But that isn't what he says at all, is it? Instead, he tells them a parable. He doesn't come right out and contradict the guy and say, you're wrong. And you've misrepresented the character of God. And you've misrepresented what the feast is all about. Instead, he tells a parable. He tells them a parable. And he ends the parable saying, this is my feast. My feast. How dare you misrepresent my feast? And all of a sudden, the debate about what the feast is all about gets a whole lot more real. All of a sudden, it's not about theological abstract arguments. All of a sudden, it's about, hey, the feast is now, and the feast is here. It's my feast It's time to put away your lame, offensive excuses. You see, with this parable, Jesus is saying, Woe to you, religious leaders who make lame excuses and think you're the power brokers that the Messiah has to bow down to. This is my feast, and I will have my banquet feast, whether you want to come or not. Look at the parable. Now, to understand this parable, you need to understand the invitation and the way the invitation worked in this culture. In verse 16, when it says that the, that the guy says, hey, I want to have this banquet, and he sends out word, he's basically kind of finding out, hey, are you free? Are you available? And then the second invitation, when he sends his servant to say, come now, everything is ready... They should come because they've already responded to the invitation. This is important. This is like if I invited you over to my house, uh, which we do from time to time. Let's say I invite you over to my house. Say, come over to my house this weekend for dinner. And you say, great. And so we make this big elaborate meal. um, And you show up. You kind of hang out in my living room. And then I say, all right, come to the table. Everything's ready. And you get up and walk out. That's what's happening. Except in a culture where that kind of stuff is even more offensive than it is in our culture. In other words, they've already said, yes, we'll be there. The preparations have already been made. And then when it comes time to actually eat, to actually sit down and enjoy the feast, they make lame excuses, lame excuses. Now, first century parables almost always have ridiculous elements in them. The trick is for us in our time trying to read them is sometimes we miss the ridiculous things. But let me help you understand why these uh, excuses are really ridiculous and why the, the kind of master of the banquet has every right to be angry. The The first excuse, I need to go, I just bought some property and I need to go look at it. Like in the Middle East, there's not a lot of farmable land. There's so little, in fact, that like good pieces of land actually have names. You know, I don't know if you've ever known somebody that lived in a house with a name rather than an address. You know, that's like a pretty cool house. If your house has a name rather than an address. You know, down here in Tennessee, there's like, you know, certain mansions that have names rather than addresses. That's the kind of thing. All these pieces of property have that. You would go through kind of haggling and wrangling over a piece of property, which are very valuable, for years, it's insane to think that somebody would buy a piece of property without examining it at first. Everybody who heard this story would have said, that's ridiculous. That excuse is a lie. It's a lie. They just don't want to go. So they've made a bad excuse. The second one is like that too. Oxen, a pair of oxen only work if they can work together. You would never buy a pair of oxen, let alone five pair of oxen, without testing them. They're worthless if they don't work. So again, Jesus makes it even more ridiculous. Nobody would buy a single pair of oxen without testing them out. As a matter of fact, they tended to sell them at a market next to a field so that you could try plowing with them and make sure that they can work in tandem. Otherwise, it doesn't work. They can't plow a straight line. But Jesus makes it even more ridiculous says, I bought five pair of oxen and I need to go check them out. Please excuse me. Lame excuses. But the third one is the worst. I don't know. I live next door to to a family from Iraq. So it's always interesting to think about kind of their culture and how similar it is to the people of Jesus' day when I think about some of these things. But I was telling my wife, can you imagine if we said to my next door neighbor, Mr. Sadiq, very, you know, kind of distinguished, proper, you know, Iraqi man, um, invites me over to dinner, and I say, no, you know, I need to go have sex with my wife. Now, do you understand how big a deal that would be? Like, Middle Eastern men don't even talk about their wives publicly, let alone say, I'm married. And it's, it's kind of a euphemism here. All the English translations kind of make this a little gentler than it really is. But what he's basically saying is, I've got a wife, and, you know, I need to go uh, be with her. And he doesn't even ask for an excuse. So it goes from lame excuses to outright offensiveness. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's what it's like, right? Jesus is telling this parable to Jewish leadership who are well aware that God has been promising a great banquet. Now it's here in the person of Jesus and they don't want it. They don't want it Even though Isaiah 25 said this is what's coming a banquet for all the peoples, they don't want it because they want to basically just have a banquet that's along their terms and their ideas. A banquet that keeps them in power, that keeps them hanging out with all their rich friends, and keeps the riffraff out. They're not interested in the banquet or the king of the banquet. But Jesus is committed to having his party, and nothing can stop him. What a beautiful picture this is. If you want to understand what is Christianity about, what is Jesus about, here's a picture for you. Jesus has come to bring this beautiful, amazing party. This wedding feast, this banquet that had been promised is finally now going to be realized, and he will not be thwarted. But those, those who trust in their own righteousness, those who think that the purpose of life is to hang out with the powerful and to feel good about themselves all the time because everybody thinks they're awesome, those people aren't interested in this banquet. It's not something they're interested in. But Jesus is going to have his banquet anyway. The ones who respond are the ones who are blown away that they were even invited. You know, it's interesting. So many people I know that have been raised in church have this sense of entitlement. And I'd include myself in that. I remember one time I was thinking, why does Jesus regularly describe the kingdom of God as the greatest party you've ever known? Doesn't that seem a little risky? Because most Christians I know, most people who've been raised in church, don't think of their relationship with God as the greatest party that they've ever known. Did Jesus overreach? Was this just hyperbole? Did they not really know what good parties were back in the first century? And so, you know, what? Why would he use this image? And then it dawned on me. The reason I'm not so thrilled by this image, the reason it doesn't stun me the way it should... And the reason I think it doesn't stun most of us is because we just have this sense that, well, of course I'm invited. It wouldn't be a party without me. And if that's what you think, that you're entitled to an invitation, you're very far from understanding what the kingdom of God is really about. Because the kingdom of God is about the greatest party that you have no right to be invited to. And in spite of the fact that the people that might seem to deserve to be there, make lame excuses, even offensive excuses, spitting in Jesus' face saying, we don't want your party. Jesus says, I'm going to have it anyway. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to invite people that never could have dreamed that they would get to come to this party. Do you think the people that got the second invites were excited to be at the party? Oh, you better believe it. Absolutely. Maybe too many of us have been taught The the way you become a Christian is you accept Jesus into your heart. Now the Bible actually never says that. You know, it doesn't. And you might think this is no big deal. Maybe I'm just making a little theological quibble. But it does turn things upside down a bit. If you think that Jesus is all about getting you to accept him, rather than him accepting you, you've turned things upside down. And the idea of the party will never have the impact that it's supposed to have. What should blow us away is not that Jesus is out there kind of impotently knocking on our heart, saying, please give me a chance. What should blow us away is the Lord of all creation, who we offend regularly, says, I still want you at my party. I insist that you come. And that's what's fascinating here. This, this language of compel them to come in. Now, it's not like go strong-arm them, like drag them in here. No, the reason that Jesus in this parable says go, go out and compel these people to come in is because the people that he sends them after to finally fill up the party are people who would, they would be duty-bound to say, no, we can't accept. In this culture... You, would, you couldn't accept, if somebody higher than you invites you to their house, you have to say no, because the social class is so different. So when Jesus says, compel them to come in, he says, you're going to have to convince them that I'm serious. I want you there. I insist that you come. Don't say you don't deserve it. Don't say you're not worthy. I know that. Come anyway. Come anyway. I insist on it. That's the news that the Christians were thrilled to share with people. That the Lord of the universe didn't just come down here to make the powerful even more powerful. He came to come to say to the people that said, I have no right to even come anywhere near God, let alone come to his feast The news that they brought was Jesus came in the flesh and said, I insist that you come. I insist that you eat with me. I insist that you hang out with me. And A lot of people didn't like that Jesus sat, ate with tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus said, I need to. Because I need everybody to understand what my kingdom is about. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of mercy. Mercy that goes to people who would want to say, No, Jesus, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I haven't done. There's no way you want me. I would ruin the party if I showed up. He says, no, I insist you come. Come and eat. But he does more than insist. He secures the way for those of us who could never deserve it. Remember Isaiah 25. The feast is a feast to celebrate his work. In swallowing up death forever. And maybe some of you, if you've read very far in the Bible, you might even recognize some of these images in Isaiah 25 because they show up in the book of Revelation. Maybe you've heard this idea, the coming um, of the heavenly city will come down and this promise that death will be swallowed up forever and he will wipe away every tear from our eye. That didn't come out of nowhere. That came out of Isaiah 25. God has been making that promise for a long time. And here's what Jesus is saying. It's here. And it's not just that I insist that you come. I'm going to secure the way for you to come. There's this very fascinating story in John chapter 2. to the very first miracle he does. And it's interesting to connect to this story. Because Jesus is there at this wedding feast in Cana. And all of a sudden, they run out of wine. You remember this story? And his mother comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Do You remember what he says to her? Well, most of the translations soften it by saying, dear woman. He doesn't say dear. He says, woman, why do you bother me? It's borderline rude. But I think what's actually going on is she catches him and his mind is somewhere else. Tim Keller has this beautiful picture. He says, Jesus is sitting there in the midst of all this festive joy thinking about his own wedding. Listen, when you're single and you go to a wedding, you think about your own wedding. You do. Guys, if you ever go on a date with a girl to a wedding, this is going on and may explain some of the behavior that you're like, where did that come from? (laughs) This is what single people do. I was single until I was 33. I understand. That's what Jesus is doing. He's thinking about his wedding. And he understands, he understands that for him to celebrate his wedding feast with his bride, he's going to have to go to the cross. How do we know that? Because he says, woman, why do you bother me? My hour is not yet. Most of the translations say my time is not yet. But in the Greek, it's more specific, my hour. And in John's gospel, the hour, when Jesus talks about his hour, it always is a reference to the cross. So he's sitting there in the midst of this party thinking about his death. Because Jesus knows that the festival, the great feast, the great wedding banquet, it's not just that he insists that you come, he secures the way for us to come by swallowing up death and doing away with shame and sin. So here's the question that we close with. Which group are you in, and why would you resist this party? See, you gotta remember, most of the parables have a point to make for every group that's a major character in the parable. Which group are you? Are you the rich and powerful insiders who would rather make excuses than come to Jesus' party? Or are you like the crowd? At this point in Jesus' ministry, you've got the Pharisees watching him closely. You've got the crowd who's kind of clueless trying to figure out what's going on, and then you've got the disciples. The crowd is the ones that need to understand what the kingdom's about. They're still very confused. The Pharisees are beginning to understand what Jesus is about, and they don't like it at all. Then there's the true disciples. They're kind of getting it. They still don't quite get it. As a matter of fact, later on, one, of the two of them are going to come up to him and say, you know, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom and you're about to kind of be at this wedding feast, can we sit on your right and your left? I mean, Jesus just said, when you have your party... It's not about you having a place of honor. And even his own disciples don't get that, even as he's getting close to his own death, right? Or are you the poor, blind, and crippled who can't believe you've been invited? Are you the far away who needs to be compelled to come in because this invitation just seems too good to be true? Let me close by asking this. Why would you resist? Maybe you think there's a better party going on somewhere. I understand that. You're in college now. There's got to be some other things to do to invest my life in, some other places to find great joy. Particularly if you've thought of Christianity as something that you deserve, you probably haven't experienced the gospel as a lot of joy. But maybe you need to understand the gospel afresh. The one who made you for himself... Says, come be with me, I insist. Maybe you don't like how exclusive the invitation seems to be. After all, some people don't get to come to this party. But I think the scripture is pretty clear. The people that don't come to this party are the people that wouldn't like it anyway. Because they don't want it on Jesus' terms. They want a party that makes them feel powerful. They don't want a party that celebrates Jesus' grace. That's not what gets them fired up. That's not what gets them excited. That's not what brings them joy. Maybe, I hope this isn't the case, but maybe you don't like all the broken, lame, and poor people that Jesus insists on inviting to his party. Maybe you look around and you're like, yeah, I don't know if I really want to hang out with those people. I mean, especially freshman year in college, and the opportunity to kind of find a whole new group of friends. Actually, you can kind of do that every year in college. Man, I don't really like these friends. Those Christians, there's a lot of weird people. There. If so, you probably need to understand who you really are. In Jesus' day, there were some people that didn't like this party. You know why? They thought, it's not time to party. The Romans are occupying God's holy land. We need a warrior king who will bring justice to the earth and bring it now. It's not time for a party. So, a lot of people in Jesus' They thought, and that's why Jesus had to keep telling them stories like this, that they would begin to understand the surprising news about how he, the true warrior king, would bring justice to the earth. But it was justice that would come in a very surprising way. This feast is a celebration of the Lord's glory in making all things new, and if you long for that, this party's for you. But maybe your resistance is from seeing how utterly weak and selfish you really are saying, Jesus, you don't want me. You don't want me. I would, make, I would make your church an offense. I would make people wonder what kind of God you are. If I was hanging out, oh, you don't want me. You don't know what I've done. And if that's the reason that you're resisting, then hear these words of Jesus from Matthew eleven eighteen. 18. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what this story is about. That's what the king and his kingdom are about. Let's pray together.